If you've been listening to the Business of Biotech podcast for a while now, you'll recall that Aaron Harris has joined me to co-host a few episodes. Aaron's my friend, colleague, and chief editor over at sellandgene.com, and she just recently launched a podcast of her own. It's aptly named Sell and Gene, the podcast. And if you're working in the Sell and Gene space, you should give it a listen. It's a collection of interviews with the industry and academic leaders moving the space forward. And you can find it at sellandgene.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Sell and Gene, the podcast. Check it out. Welcome back to the Business of Biotech. I'm Matt Piller, and I'm once again joined by everybody's favorite biotech finance guy, special advisor, Alan Shaw. And you know, Alan, I got to thinking yesterday, uh, I get quite a bit of fan mail on your behalf. I get quite a bit of uh, you know positive feedback on the episodes we record. And, and I, know, I know people, it's obvious, people like to hear what you have to say. Uh, but I don't know if I've ever properly sung your accolades as I usually do with my guests, you know, give a little bit of biographical history. And if I have, it occurred to me that if I have done that, it was probably like 60 episodes ago. <laughs> so, so just real quick for anyone curious as to why you've endeared yourself to this show, I'm going to bear with me for a minute while I toss up a few biographical highlights for our listeners. Is that okay with you? I'm gonna uh, that, 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 that's fine. I'll try not to blush. <laughs> I'll sing your praises. So, so for those of you following along at home, wondering, you know, where, where, where Alan gets all of his wisdom from, he's uh, Alan is a four-time public company CFO, four, five now. He's signaling me five. Yes, uh, Portage is your is your fifth engagement. Okay. Absolutely. Yep. So five-time public company CFO to companies including Syndax. Pharmaceuticals and Serono, now now Portage. Uh, he was managing director and life science practice leader for Alvarez and Marsal's healthcare industry group. He's served on, he'll correct me if I get this one wrong, five public boards. That's correct. Okay. Yep. Chairing two audit committees and two compensation committees along the way. He's currently special advisor to a portfolio of biotech companies. Some I'm sure he'd be willing to mention and others are clandestine skunk works operations. He's put <laughs> a lot of notches in his biopharma business belt over the past 20 odd years of biotech corporate governments, governance and financial management including oversight of more than $4 billion, which is probably dated information, $4 billion in public and private financings, including several IPOs and numerous business development transactions. Now, we were just, Alan and I were discussing the fact that, uh, you know, he's rooted in finance, but he's, uh, he's far more. He's, he's a renaissance man as it relates to biotech. But his background is built on this foundation of, of accounting. Alan started his career Many, many moons ago, sliding beads on an abacus at, uh, <laughs> at Deloitte and Touche, uh, which those listeners of a certain age will recognize Deloitte and Touche as being one of the big six. And now I think maybe big four. I'm not sure what number we're at. Uh, global yeah, one time high five, but now it's big four. Big four, uh, yeah. Professional services and accounting firms. So uh, so for anyone anyone wondering, that's how Alan has has honed this the sharp wit and gained the perspectives that uh, that keep me coming back for more of him on this show. Uh, thanks, Matt. Really uh, uh, you appreciate bet. you. Bet. It occurred to me. I think we probably on episode one, I might have you know kind of framed up who you were, and uh, you know a lot of folks know, but for those who don't, that's 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 where it comes from. So, 
On today's episode, Alan and I are going to, we're going to dig into the state of clinical trials from the business perspective. And um, based on some of what I've read, uh, some of Alan's writings on the topic and, and conversation with him, uh, I'd, I'd sum by saying it ain't necessarily good. Um, so I want to start out by quoting you, Alan, from a column you wrote for Life Science Leader. Uh, I don't know. I think it was like maybe mid 2019, short, let's say shortly before the pandemic began. In this column, um, which touched on a lot of points, clinical trials being central, a central theme, you said the greatest factor impeding the creation of innovative drugs for common diseases is the enormous cost and risk of clinical trials that constitute the largest single component of the R&D budget. In fact, phase three trials are by far the biggest expense and the biggest risk of new drug development, typically incurring 90% or more of that drug develop, drug's development costs. So I want to start right there. It's a, it's a strong statement, and I'd like you to unpack for us why this, why the, the, the status quo is not sustainable. You know, a lot of it is, you know, like night follows day, you know, back in going, going back to my formative years, you know, I used to sit down when I was an auditor and I used to ask my team, why did the auditor cross the road? And uh, the answer was, they look at me and the answer simply put was because they did it last year. And, and that's how we've been doing things. Um, you know, but with, with that said, the current there's the current system is a roadblock, as, as you pointed out. Uh, simply put, clinical development process is antiquated and is and is an impediment to opt. Ironically, to optimal patient outcomes. You know, everyone believes, and rightfully so, in the sacrosanct, the gold standard of ran, of traditional random randomized controlled trials to generate evidence regarding the benefits and safety of drugs. However, you know, it's slow, it's inefficient, and it's limited in terms of the questions they answer, you know, to kind of put it into brass tack terms. You know, it's the way we go appro approach clinical trials, particularly for the big diseases, is akin to trying to buy a, uh, a suit off the rack. Yeah. You know, one size does not fit all. We, you know, and I think there's enough science around to let us know that one size doesn't fit all. You know, we used to think breast cancer was breast cancer until we got smart about it and realized, you know, there's an infinite number and kinds of breast cancer. And that's not limited to that particular pathology. So, you know, you know, the science has moved well ahead of the traditional processes. And I, I think it's it's certainly time to rethink how we do that and stop crossing the road because we always have. And I think there's lessons to be learned uh, looking elsewhere in the industry in terms of where you can learn from in terms of what's working and what's not working. Clearly, this isn't working. And yeah. it's not necessarily just my, my particular view. You know, a former FDA deputy commissioner of medical affairs noted that the um, that the way we use highly empirical statistical methods that predominate that really predominates in, is generally inflexible and really restricts innovation for overly large trials. You know, and, and when you're thinking about trying to come up with a design that's general, right? You know, there's no general person out there. Everyone's different, as we said. It's not a homogeneous. You know, when you break it down to real life. Doctors don't treat populations, they treat individuals. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, and it's, it's typically very expensive to undertake these studies uh, 
And, you know, and, and bottom line, you know, you go back to my accounting, you know, at the end of the day, everything's about following the money. You know, you can really learn a lot by where the money goes. And, yeah. and you know, when you look at these studies now, the biggest studies, but does the risk benefit doesn't work. You know, when you look at more precision math, medicine and, and more subtype in patients, you know, those studies have a much higher probability of success. And when you're looking at general uh, productivity in the industry, those things, I think, correlate to it. Yet when you mandate these big studies for big populations like that, you're, it's really going back to the future. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. So and you've referenced I've, I've seen you reference uh, or heard you reference the orphan drug approach. I think you're alluding to that a little bit, at, at least as. Uh, something that's closer to an appropriate model for for clinical trials. And I, I've spent time talking with, um, you know, young, innovative uh, biopharma leaders who um, are, are are taking that approach as they design trials. So let's let's hear a little bit more of that case. And, and I'd like to hit on a, a few different points, starting with trial design. What, what does that look like, you know, that's different from um, the status quo that's costing so much money and time and inefficiency right now? You know, I, I think some of the trial design speaks back to what we're talking about, the large general studies. And, you know, I think with biomarkers now and, and other methodologies of being able to identify subtypes where yeah. you're going to improve the probability of success, it, it allows you to kind of um, focus at that point in terms of patient selection, um, enriching your studies to be able to improve that. And, and those are a lot of the characteristics associated with why often drugs have been very successful at, at the end of the day, uh, because it's, it's, it's a very subset group of people usually suffering from a distinctive mutation or absence of a protein of some kind or something, something is just not working. And so you can really, you, you've, your patients are screened for you at, at the end of the day. So you've already enriching your studies. And because of that, rather than having to run, you know, 20,000 person studies for cardiovascular diseases, you can, you can literally, in certain cases, get a drug approved with 50 patients. And you can often bypass that very costly phase three, you know, once you develop, demonstrate safety and proof of concept, uh, you know, you're really off to the races. And the yeah. FDA has made a lot of concessions in, in that respect. And it all comes back to capital efficiency uh, because, you know, they made those concessions and you see where the money's going right now. It's going into oncology and it's going into orphan diseases just by the, the sheer magnitude of dominance and the number of drugs that are being developed, the number of drugs that are coming to market and, and approved. Yeah. Um, and I think adaptive clinical, uh, you know, adaptive uh, trial designs allow you to be able to make changes on the fly you can actually learn from what you've been doing. And if something's clearly not working, you can modify it. You know, it's all part of the, the recipe that you prepare up front. But uh, I think that is definitely where I, I think things are going. And yeah. it makes a lot of sense for a lot of different reasons. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, uh, you know, uh, obviously, where, wherever there's change, uh, oftentimes, right, there's there's challenge as well. So the change that you're referencing, I've got just have a follow up question on like biomarkers and highly you know specified uh, trials um, that that creates a bit of a challenge right up front in terms of selecting the right patients. Obviously, the outcome, the desired outcome is is theoretically going to be better. Um, but how big a challenge is it? 
or, or would it be for, for biopharmacists who are kind of used to, like, let's take oncological indications, for instance, who are used to going going out there and like like you said, you know, at one point we thought there was breast cancer. Now we know that there are multiple, multiple forms of breast cancer. So for a biopharma to go out there and identify uh, patients and do patient recruitment uh, on a broader scale to make the shift to, you know, biomarkers and, and highly specific populations of, of patients, how, how big a challenge is that from a business and financial perspective? You know, it, it, it really requires you to have your, your house in order and your ducks in a row. You really have to understand your compound at the end of the day. Mm. You know, what are the properties? What are the mechanisms of action? Where's the right point of disease intervention uh, to be able to understand that information? So it really, I think, puts more emphasis on having robust you know, preclinical data in order to understand the PK, PD data dynamics uh, because that, that's really important in terms of determining the right dose. Um, yeah. So, and, and that also correlates to understanding because if you know the mechanism, then you know what you're looking for in terms of biomarkers. You mentioned, so, and you mentioned that that plays right into the, uh, adaptive trial design. You mentioned, you know, having the ability to pivot in a trial when you identify a population that benefits most from the drug that also would create, and I would assume, um, maybe to the more skeptical or cynical uh, uh, among the folks following the space, uh, a communication challenge, right? Like if you're adapt, well, so two challenges, two, two challenges come to mind from, from the outset, and I'll, I'll pose them both to you and ask you to reflect. The first challenge being, okay, you know, to your point, why did the auditor cross the road? Because that's what he did last year. Uh, there's a challenge in accepting or, or rolling up your sleeves and, and designing uh, an adaptive trial, building flexibility. So what, 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 what sort of needs to be overcome within the organization to embrace that rather than fear it? And then two, on the backside of that, when you do pivot during a trial, what goes into effectively communicating that pivot to stakeholders so that the pivot isn't seen by, as I said, those cynical <laughs> among the, the followers as um, a juke or a, <laughs> right? Like a, you're, you're zigging when uh, everyone anticipated you would zag. So maybe a, maybe spin, if you will. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, when you think about the industrial jeopardies that about 90% of what we work on isn't going to work. Yeah. You know, the zigging is part of the business. Right. Uh, I think uh, when you had you were talking with Ian Walters recently, I think, uh, you know, his big yeah. point was 80. You got to know what to do when 80 percent of the time it doesn't work. Right. You can pick the targets 20 percent, you know, get 20 percent. Uh, I guess restating it. I don't want to misstate him. <laughs> but, no, that was but, about but, right. But, but he basically said that, you know, in terms of drug development, in terms of the effort, 20 percent is, is picking the right assets and 80% is figuring out what to do when it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you need to know how to build adaptability into it. So, you know, you, you can almost say like post-its, you know, where have they been my, before we had post-its, you know, it seems too obvious and too logical that we should build flexibility into our studies. You know, it, it kind of embraces a lot of different concepts that are general, that are drawing a lot of steam right now. You're looking at adaptive studies, you're looking at real world studies and, and when you're looking at adaptive, you know, and, and precision science, you know, and, and it's really you, you have the ability to kind of house all of that under one roof uh, because you take in real world evidence as you're dealing with it. 
You know, you're adapting as it as it occurs. And you're also drilling down to patient subtype populations, such as precision medicine, in order to kind of enrich and improve your probability of success. And, you know, there's, you know, there's even other things that are coming out now that are, are further moving that way. Decentralized studies where you're leveraging technologies and wearables and monitors. So there, there's a lot of different ways to engage patients to to uh, ensure compliance, you know, compliance, bottom line, it's all about compliance. You know, that's the greatest uh, headwind you have in terms of generating the positive, successful patient outcomes. The business of biotech is brought to you in partnership with Cytiva. Together, we're committed to helping the leaders of new and emerging biopharma companies navigate the financial, organizational, human resources, and regulatory waters you'll encounter on your way from discovery to the clinic and beyond. Check out a host of useful resources for biotech leaders at Cytiva's Emerging Biotech Accelerator at cytivalifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A lifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. And I want to get into that too. I want to, I want to ask you some questions around the you know the, the FDA, which you referenced earlier, and just what sort of uh, mountains need to be moved there. But before I do, uh, another kind of simplistic question from a business perspective that I'd like your your thoughts on: adaptive trials, right? Like, let's say perhaps you you begin your trials w- with an ocean of potential, and as you as you pivot, as you adapt, as you become more precise in the identification identification of patients who are um, receptive to a treatment, that ocean gets smaller. Uh, Again, very basic principle, very naive on my part to ask the question, but as your market gets smaller, your business opportunity, some, some, you know, perhaps corollarily gets smaller as well. How do you, how do you justify that? You know, um, it, the, the industry is an interesting industry, right? I don't think there's another industry uh, that can actually sell products without a warranty or a guarantee. You know, mm. if you bought a car and it didn't work, would you get your money back? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's. So you know, I think I think the I think the industry is going to become more and more accountable. I think there's going to be more and more risk sharing in terms of how and, and measuring payment and services on outcomes. So you know, this is a, a, a ultimately, I think, a convergence of, of where things need to go. And I also think that people might also be willing to pay more if you know it's going to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might ask how much more. Its price is already ridiculous, uh, as, as from from a lot of people's perspectives. Uh, you know, for good reasons. Uh, you know, I want I, I don't sure. want to infer anything other than that. Um, but. But with that said, if you look at the often drug model, if you're drug, you know, they, they charge uh, prices for, for small populations, they, you know, you can charge a quarter of a million dollars, a half million dollars. And there's, ever, there's a, a, certainly a, situations that have gone higher than that. And these are blockbuster products. So you can still make money. And it still works because you're delivering something that works for patients and you're, you're, you know, you're getting the right returns or appropriate returns for the risk reward given yep. the industrial jeopardies. And a lot of times when you're, you're, you know, ultimately, it's not necessarily just the cost of the drug you're developing. It's also the, all the costs of all the drugs that aren't working that you're looking to, you know, 
It's a sure. business at the end of the day that needs to be uh, re- re- recovered. Uh, so I, I think a smaller market really speaks to, you know, there's pricing flexibility in terms of that. And you have less headwinds in terms of reimbursement. You know, if things work, you know, that that's a good outcome for everybody. Yep. Okay. All right. So yeah, uh, the FDA shifting back to that, you know, you, you referenced it uh, earlier, um, quoting a former FDA commissioner, uh, acknowledging that things need to change yet at the same time. I mean, it's almost, you know, when I think about it again, maybe overly simplistic, but is it, is it a chicken and egg scenario? Who drives the change, the industry or the agency? And, and, and if the agency is driving the change or involved in the change, what needs to change at the agency to lay a, a new new clinical path forward? You know, there's a, I, I can go in a lot of directions with that. Um, <laughs> well, I, I would, feel free. Take them all. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you know, the, 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 in fairness to the FDA, they are working on, on it now. Uh, they've been really embracing adaptive studies. They're doing a lot. Uh, I spy and a number of others. Uh, yeah, you know, I think the FDA is right now a little, little, little bit of an, an abyss right now because there's no permanent leader there. And that's that's a, a political situation that's probably better served for another day. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the, in, in terms of the, the, sh- the sh- short answer to your question, it's going to require the collaboration of uh, regulators, payers, uh, and, and industry actors to to get that to happen. And, and it's and it's happening slowly. But uh, you know, from my my perspective, the easiest way to make things work, and, and I would call the laissez-faire. But you know, to me, you know. Uh, you can learn from past examples. And that, that's why I've often called out the Often Drug Act and, and what's gone on with Often Drugs is, a, is an illustrative example of how you can make something out of nothing. You know, before the Often Drug Act, there were, you know, the number of often drugs that were under development, it was Spartan. Uh, it was, you know, no one cared about often drugs and, you know, our hearts went out to the patients associated with that, but not a lot was being done to help them. Uh, as an advent uh, to that, it, it, it really stimulated, you know, I, I think it did more than they ever intended to do. Uh, you know, I see multiple drugs now being approved for often indications, and I'm wondering how can it be an often drug if you got all these <laughs> drugs for them? But um, at, at the end of the day, and, and, and you see it also in terms of oncology, where, you know, there's a huge unmet medical need. Again, it comes down to the risk-benefit ratio, and when you're dealing with, uh, you know, morbidity and, and, and fatalities associated with cancer, it's a lower bar to demonstrate success. And in the past, we demonstrated success by improving patients' lives by days, weeks, months. You know, it was relatively marginal. Now we've got we got some programs out there that are having profound impact on some of the pay patient populations. It's still a lot more to go there, but you're, you're, you're seeing the flow of capital in terms of the number of drugs that are being approved, the number of drugs that are being developed. Uh, and really it's due to the detriment of a lot of the common indications. Certainly it's, they're not getting, when you're thinking about the number of patients and the comorbidities people have, you know, there's not enough being done on that front. And, and I personally, I think a lot of it has to do with capital allocation. It's just not, 
it's there's no cost benefit. You know, if you, you know, you know, some of the things that in my mind that the FDA can do to uh, make this more capital efficient and, and create more favorable risk adjusted returns would be, first of all, reducing the cost to develop these drugs. And the way we're going about them right now is is a huge, huge, huge hindrance. It certainly keeps you think about where all the innovations coming from. It's coming from biotech. And big farmers buying that innovation, and that becomes their products at the end of the day. And because of the dynamics we've just mentioned, nobody's really touching that in big in biotech, and no one really wants to be. And, and everyone's going to scorn them because why are you going after a mass um, a mass market type of uh, indication for such a small company? So it is a chicken or the egg a little bit in, in, in that regard. And, and because innovation is coming from outside big farmers' walls you know, they're less likely to do this in-house too and bet the ranch on these big costs. So I, I you know, I think that that's really um, important. And that really comes down to the trial designs and patient selection and, and enrichment and really knowing your drug before you go into the clinic. Everyone's in such a rush. You know, a lot of times they skip a lot of this, that's the work that they probably should be doing to have better knowledge of, of their compounds in the first place. You know, I, I think there's economic incentives, you know, tax credits, grants, waiving fees to provide incentive for certain programs. You saw them, the FDA try to do something like that with antibiotics a few years ago in that spirit. Obviously, they need to do a little bit more. <laughs> that, is, that is not enough been done there. And I think that's the part of the commercial dynamic. And that can be we'll say that for another day. You know, you can provide better, faster priority reviews, maybe even provide vouchers. You know, those priority review vouchers have been for very niche areas. But, you know, that's created a, an incentive for people and actually a cottage industry in terms of trading some of those things. Yep. for Some of the companies, you know, um, you know, the FDA has has demonstrated the ability to have administrative flexibility with often drugs in order to adjust endpoints and being flexible on how to do it. Post-market approvals ties back into real world data. You know, there's a lot a lot of different ways you can go about shrinking the time from in, in the development period and trying to get things out to patients. Because right now the loser are patients. Uh, at, at the end of the day, and and, and the money's going to go where it's the easiest and the lowest path of resistance. You know, yeah. it is a business at the end of the day, so you need those incentives. Uh, you can consider like often drugs; they get additional market exclusivity. You know, maybe you know we we consider that. You know. Um, and all these things translate into higher probabilities for approval. Um, and, and, and it also, going back to your question about the small market, you know, not only can you ch- charge higher prices, but it's also very, more, very much more commercially efficient. Uh, you know, you don't have to build out huge sales teams, you know. So, you know, it's going to be a little harder when you apply that to chronic diseases, common chronic diseases, because the population is so big. But I also think with through digitization, a lot of the detailing and the way we used to promote drugs has gone the way of the dinosaur. Um, and there's there's definitely opportunities to do that stuff much more cost effectively. And that that's a that, that there's a big industry in, in digital marketing and, and patient engagement. So there's a lot of different ways that I think you can harness into that to create the paradigm that's that's needed to kind of bring bring this into the 21st century. Yeah. So a lot of the things that you referenced, you know, you, you referenced uh, approaches or strategies that can be taken, 
here and now, but it occurs to me as as you're talking through them that it, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that it's incumbent on the biopharma, you know, the, the sponsor or innovator leaders within the biopharma um, organization to go out and attempt to leverage those opportunities, right? Like it's not, it's not like you're going to go, you know, let, let, let's call the FDA uh, and, and see, and see what avenue or avenues we can take to design a flexible clinical trial, expedite some of our approvals. You, you, it's incumbent on, on, on the biopharma to, to sort of do that research, develop a strategy, and then engage with what they want, right? Ask for what they want as opposed to ask for what's available. Yeah, I think they. I think it's beholden to them. You're absolutely right to 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 define what they're looking to do. I yeah. think it's a good idea, certainly, to run it past the FDA, make sure everybody's on the same page to confirm or get their input. But by all means, you, you know, it's the companies drive the bus, right? The FDA isn't uh, doesn't isn't a isn't a, uh, a consultant. You know, they're a they're a regulator. But yep. they, they can be they can be used helpfully. And I think people could probably reach out to them more than they usually do. I mean, uh, to try to get that type of input. And, and I think it's capital efficient. I think all stakeholders win by it. So I think uh, companies that do take a more enlightened approach to clinical design will ultimately uh, dem- have uh, demonstrated with higher levels of success. Yep. So you um, you allude in the time we have left here. I want to talk about what uh, what forces of change are in play now. You know, you alluded to some strategies you can take with the FDA programs and opportunities that are available. Um, but what are you seeing out there in terms of, like I said, I've, I've talked with some um, with some biopharma leaders who are absolutely pursuing the biomarker approach, you know, the precision medicine approach to their clinical trial design. What are you seeing out there in terms of, you know, what forces of change are kind of driving the initiative at present? You know, I I think it is about improving overall uh, productivity and and yielding better probabilities of success. Uh, and I think, you know, proper planning does pe- prevent piss poor performance, no matter what industry you, you see it in. But, uh, you know, I think AI is something to be reckoned with. I think we're very much in the first inning there. And, you know, you're, you're seeing it in, in different areas, you know, whether it's, you know, I know I know with one of the companies I'm involved with, we, you know, we have uh, a couple of collaborations there in terms of identifying uh, new assets um, you know, BioXL Therapeutics is a very interesting uh, company. You know, they're using AI and, and they're, they're having a lot of success there in terms of their ability to um, come up with transformative medicines in both neurology as well as IO um, through their, their, their algorithms and their um, learning machines. Uh, on, on other levels, you know, you, you can also use it, I, I think, in terms of, you know, um, running correlating PKPD data to compound elements, 
you know, figuring out dosing and again, improving probability. You know, if you have a look at a, uh, a Meyer Kaplan curve, you know, a lot of times, you know, you're looking for separation between the groups and, and sometimes you don't see initial separation. It takes a little bit of time. And, and, and that really speaks to the fact that you're not picking the right patients at, yeah. at, 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 at the end of the day. So, you know, I think it can really help with the patient selection side as well as the dosing side. So there, there's little elements, whether you're looking at drug targeting, you know, dosing. And, and, but I think it really does uh, improve, will improve the probability of success. And like I said, BioXL, certainly uh, I haven't expected the, uh, this, the, what has come out of there. So that's been a real pleasant surprise. Um, I, I would also go on to say that, you know, decentralized studies, I touched on it a little bit uh, earlier, but I, I think, you know, if you don't have, and I think that's probably been accelerated through this environment of COVID because people really don't want to go into hospitals, right? Well, well, you know, if you're going into participating in a study, why would you want to take additional risks? Mm -hmm. So, um, and nothing co ever goes com good comes out of a hospital. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I try to stay away from those uh, yes. whenever I can. Um, so, you know, I, I think being able to go to decentralized studies and leveraging technology is, 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 is a new paradigm. Uh, you know, you can basically accelerate status oversight. It enables mid-course correction, which is really important. You can really see things as it's happening. Yeah. You know, the old-fashioned way you take it once every two weeks, whenever you took data, now you're constantly monitoring things. Uh, so it really also enables more real-life settings as well. And, and, and as I touched on earlier, it facilitates patient participation. You're taking away people's excuses. You know, um, it helps with the accrual rates because, the, again, the, why, why not? Um, and then I think lastly, patient compliance. And, and that's really one of the most underspoken, I think, elements out there uh, in terms of, uh, you know, successful outcomes. Sure. Yeah. Quick, quick question on the technology side. You know, you, you mentioned AI um, and, and I agree. I mean, there's all sorts of power uh, untold there. Um, but I'm curious what the what, what's the agency's appetite for for AI or is the AI activity that you see taking place strategically uh, taking place prior to agency engagement? And just making helping develop smarter decisions for you know the data that will eventually be presented to the agency. It's an it's an interesting question, uh, and, and, and contemporaneously, I'd say it's much more the later mm -hmm. because you know it's really how you make the sausage. You know, there's a lot of elements up front. You know, in terms of doing things in order to put your package together, and I think it saves you time. It's going to save you costs if you can get the things in compressed time development timelines. You know, I, I see. You know, in my crystal ball, uh, and it may be even more advanced. Maybe I just don't get around it as much as I used to. But um, I, I would envision that it could be helpful down the road in terms of coming up with surrogate endpoints. Or secondary endpoints in terms of you know data trends that you see uh, over time with populations, natural history, and, and other things like that. So you can kind of come up with other metrics to demonstrate success. You know, I know that when we're looking at some of the safety data, one of our companies, you know, if you see elevation of you know. Um, of, of certain uh, elements, you know, you know, that's positive. So, you know, if you can leverage that type of technology, uh, 
later on. I, I, I see potential, and I think that's going to require uh, a leap of faith of the FDA. And I, I'm not quite sure where the appetite on that is. Right. But I think over time, if you can use that to accelerate the, the hypothesis, then prove that out subsequently, that, that, that in itself would be a major step forward. Perfect. Awesome. Well, we're short on time, Alan. I've, uh, I've got to jump into a staff meeting on, on this, uh, on this channel. We're, we're likely to be joined by a number of my editorial staff here any moment. Um, so, so I, but I appreciate it. That, that was a super insightful conversation, folks. Alan Shaw is leading the clinical trial revolution in biopharma. Uh, <laughs> if you have, if you have questions on how to go about it, get in touch with Alan. Uh, but thank you, my friend. Always, always a good conversation. Absolutely. Matt's in my uh, is co-pilot on that revolution. So feel free to harass <laughs> him as well. <laughs> All right. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll we'll catch up with you next time on a, another exciting topic. But in the meantime, that's Alan Shaw. I'm Matt Pillar, and this is the Business of Biotech. We're sponsored by Bioprocess Online in partnership. I'm sorry, we are produced by Bioprocess Online uh, in partnership with Cytiva. <laughs> a life sciences company that's as dedicated to the support of new and emerging biotechs as we are. You can learn more about Cytiva at CytivaLifeSciences.com backslash emerging biotech. And I'd also like to encourage you to visit BioprocessOnline.com to subscribe to my newsletter. And if you like what you heard here, subscribe to this pod. Give us five stars and tune in next week. Till then, thanks for listening. <laughs>